Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. We'd like to introduce Professor David Traver. Um, David has made really seminal discoveries in the field of hematopoietic stem cell biology, really starting where hematopoietic stem cells are born, being able to track that visually, but also understand the molecular underpinnings of the hematopoietic stem cell derivation from hemogenic endothelium. Uh, David Traver trained in our Weissman's lab. He was leaving just as I joined. And he said, Kat, follow up on this one gene, CD47. Of course, he was absolutely right. It's now Magrolimab and uh, is doing very well for patients with spinal dysplastic syndrome and other malignancies. Uh, but also went on to train um, with Lenzon at Harvard and brought back all of that technology and has really been a star in the zebrafish field and now has pivoted back uh, to work again in other systems, including mouse models, and now more recently, human stem cells. Yeah, so in my laboratory, we are mainly interested in how hematopoietic stem cells are born during development of the vertebrate embryo. And for the most part, we have been working to leverage the unique strengths that the zebrafish embryo presents to get at this question in ways that are complementary to those that are taken in the mouse or human pluripotent stem cell systems. And so today I will tell you about um, four different roles that the somite is actually playing in the instruction of hematopoietic stem cell fate. All of these things have come as a surprise to us. And so the embryo has taught us that we need to look earlier and earlier during embryogenesis to really understand that time window when HSCs are being um, genetically encoded. And so we've already heard about at this meeting um, the power of hematopoietic stem cells. Um, this um, hematopoietic tree really has served as a paradigm for how most tissue-specific stem cell systems work um, in the um, animal with exceptionally rare HSEs at one end of the tree that give rise to these transit amplifying progenitor cells that in the end produce um, multiple lineages of adult blood cells for our entire life. And so um, these cells are the first stem cells that have been used in the clinic. They've been used in the clinic for decades now and underlie the efficacy of bone marrow transplantation. And while um, this um, technique has saved thousands of lives over those years, it is still um, fraught with difficulties in that it is um, very difficult to find genetic matches for many patients in need of a bone marrow transplant. And so um, work in the past um, decade or so has been, has been focusing on trying to harness this amazing discovery of Shinya Yamanaka and colleagues who have um, learned how to take a somatic cell from any one of us, put in a handful of factors into that cell and generate a pluripotent stem cell. And so this has now become very straightforward. And so a, a variety of laboratories around the world can do this um, from any patient in need to generate um, patient-specific iPS cells. And so the idea is we could then instruct those pluripotent cells, which have the ability to give rise to any tissue in the body, into um, tissue-specific stem cell subsets, including HSCs for patient-specific therapy. And so the idea, as shown here in this slide, is we would generate iPS cells from a patient. Um, we could then instruct those to generate hematopoietic stem cells, could correct any genetic deficiencies if necessary, and then put those back into that person for a patient-specific hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And so 
This is fantastic on paper, but in practice, it has not been possible to generate bona fide HSCs from iPS cells, despite really good labs working on this for um, 30 to 40 years now. And so some of the reasons for this are illustrated in this slide, um, where developmental hematopoiesis is actually a lot more complicated than you might expect. And so there are four different waves of hematopoiesis during development of the vertebrate embryo. This is, I think, conserved across all vertebrate animals studied. Um, there are the so-called primitive waves, which give rise to relatively simple subsets of blood cells, including myeloid cells, erythroid cells, and then there's a transient progenitor, which gives rise to a variety of cell types. But the bottom line is that all of these cells are transient. They do not have self-renewal potential, and it's not until this fourth and final wave of hematopoiesis um, that hematopoietic stem cells are genetically encoded. And these are the only cells that are multipotent and able to give rise to the suite of um, effector uh, immune cells for the life of the animal. And so the main work in my laboratory is trying to understand why is this process different? Because um, you know, with embryonic stem cells and iPS cells, it's relatively easy to generate these early hematopoietic cell types. But as I mentioned, it's been almost impossible to date to generate these HSCs, or what you, which is what you need for patient-specific uh, transplant therapies. And so to really understand what makes this population unique, we first needed to understand exactly when and where HSCs were born um, during zebrafish development. And so um, at the time I started my laboratory, this was actually a controversial issue. There was several different competing models as to where HSCs were born. We reasoned because we were working in this beautiful system, which is completely translucent, we should be able to simply watch uh, with the correct tools and learn where HSCs come from. And so in this confocal time-lap image, um, I will um, focus on this area here in the trunk, uh, which is where um, work from many laboratories had suggested HSCs um, initially um, show up. Um, what Julian Bertrand did um, when he was a fellow in the laboratory is he generated a double transgenic animal where all the vasculature was marked by this FLIC1 um, M-cherry transgene and the developing hematopoietic stem cells by this green um, CMIB GFP driver here. What you're looking at here is the aorta on the top. Just underneath that is the cardinal vein. And if you watch these two arrowheads as this movie progresses, you will see that these cells, which initially start off looking like typical flattened endothelial cell morphology, these cells round up, um, they enter um, circulation and leave that site um, in the aortic floor. Is another cell undergoing the so-called endothelial to hematopoietic transition. And so we learned from these events and from also doing lineage tracing in which we use this same FLIC1 driver to express a Cree recombinase. When we did these experiments, we could show that effectively all of the adult hematopoietic cells are derived from this transient developmental event, which takes place over about two days of development in the zebrafish embryo. And so knowing that um, hematopoietic stem cells derive from this particular region of the embryo, and this is not um, true only in the zebrafish. This appears to be highly conserved in all vertebrate animals looked at, including us, is that um, what I just showed you is that HSCs come from this endothelial to hematopoietic transition um, from the floor of the dorsal aorta. They enter circulation and go on to seed the subsequent hematopoietic sites. What we have been focusing on is 
where do these hemogenic endothelial cells come from? With the main question being, when uh, are hematopoietic stem cells fated? In other words, when do these cells know that they are going to be different than their neighboring arterial endothelial cells, which do not have this potential? And so if we go back to the beginning, um, early lineage tracing studies um, showed us that um, a population of ventral mesoderm in the late blastula goes on to give rise to all of the axial blood vessels as well as the hematopoietic um, lineages. Um, during gastrulation, um, these cells um, migrate into these concentric stripes of what's called lateral plate mesoderm shown here. And if you look through um, a virtual cross-section of this, um, what is known is that signals produced from the midline of these animals are secreted and recruit these um, endothelial precursors to the embryonic midline. First are the arterial cells in red, followed by the cells that go on to contribute to the vein in purple. Um, these cells coalesce at the embryonic midline to form this vascular cord from which the aorta and the vein parse out. And then it's only from the aortic floor that these HSCs emerge. And so what we've learned over the past several years is that this time point in development, as these cells are crawling from these lateral positions to the midline, are incredibly key in um, the genetic specification of this lineage. And so what um, we've learned is that these cells here in red, which are the shared vascular precursors of both the dorsal aorta and of HSCs, need to make intimate contact with the somite, which are these blocks of tissues shown here, in order to get signals needed to become HSCs. And so um, particularly what this phase looks like, I think is really nicely illustrated in this confocal time-lapse illustrated, um, generated by Isao Kobayashi when he was a fellow in the lab. Um, what you're going to be looking at here, we're looking down on top of a developing embryo um, that has two different transgenes. One, it's a FLY1GFP transgene, which includes um, all the vascular precursors and the HSC precursors. Um, the other is a PHLW1M cherry transgene, which marks these blocks of Semitic tissue in red. And so as you watch this confocal time-lapse, so the head of the animal is to the left and the tail is to the right, you'll see that the stripes of lateral plate mesoderm actually um, zipper across the somite, underneath the somite, to form um, these axial blood vessels here, which go on. They're forming now the aorta and the vein and these structures also that go on to become the vasculature and the head on the left of these animals. And it's really during this time window between 10 and 20 hours post-fertilization that these cells are becoming fated to the HSC lineage. And so I told you that I was going to tell you um, different stories about how the somite regulates um, HSC emergence. Um, so I need to tell you a little bit about the somite. And so um, if you look at this cartoon, which is a demonstration of a, um, a virtual section, uh, like a, a cross-section through developing animal. The somites are these bilateral blocks of tissue which flank the neural tissues. And the somites are um, complex structures are highly regionalized and each one of these regions gives rise to a variety of different um, tissue types, give rise to bone, to uh, muscle and to skin. Um, but for the purposes of this talk, I will focus on two different parts of the somite. First is the sclerotome, which is this ventral domain shown here in green. And at the end, I'll tell you about um, an interesting um, role for the dermomyotome in generating this interesting population of endothelial cells, which appear to be very key uh, niche elements uh, for HSCs as they mature. 
And so our initial foray into the somite um, started when Wilson Clements was a fellow in the laboratory. And um, he became interested in the role of wind signaling in um, hematopoietic stem cell emergence. And the wind he focused on was a wind called wind 16. And he focused on this one because um, he noticed that it was expressed in this region of the cell mite called the sclerotome, which again is this ventral domain. It's shown here by these hatched lines. And this um, region is directly adjacent to where these migrating posterior lateral mesoderm cells um, um, come from. And so um, the bottom line is that when Wilson knocked out WIN16 function, we lost formation of the sclerotome, which in turn led to a complete loss of hematopoietic stem cells. So Wilson went on to show that what WIN16 is doing is activating the expression of two different notch ligands, delta C and delta D, that together were necessary to specify um, the sclerotome. And so what Wilson showed is that this pathway was critical for HSE specification. If you knock out any one of these components, there are essentially no hematopoietic stem cells generated. And so this told us the surprising and early role for the somite and the instruction of HSC-FATE, but we were left wondering how um, the sclerotome was actually signaling to these cells. So it wasn't until Isao Kobayashi joined the laboratory that we figured this out. And so Isao came to the lab with an interest in adhesion in molecules, and in particular, um, junctional adhesion molecules, or these so-called jam molecules. And so what Isao showed is that um, these precursors of hematopoietic stem cells express a jam called JAM1A. Um, what he also showed is that they then interact with the ventral face of the somite with another jam, JAM2A. And you need this tight interaction between these cells to transduce a notch signal. And so notch signaling requires cell-to-cell -cell contact. And what Esau showed is that this um, connection is needed between these two cell types in order for um, delta-D to be presented by the somite to the NOTCH1B receptor on the migrating precursors of HSCs. And the bottom line is if you disrupt any one of these four components, um, you do not transduce a requisite NOTCH signal. And although the HSCs migrate to the right place, they all, the HSC precursors, we can find them in the floor of the aorta, but without any one of these components, without this sort of requisite NOTCH signal, they all die in situ by programmed cell death. And so what these experiments told us is that um, the somite is required to interact with HSC precursors to transduce this very strong level of notch signaling, which they need um, to undergo their maturation to HSCs. And so, so far, I've told you about two different roles of the somite very quickly in that WIN16 regulates expression of two notch ligands to form the sclerotome, and that that sclerotome is then needed in turn to present one of those ligands, delta-D, to the migrating precursors of HSCs. And so we knew that one of the um, immediate events of this notch signal is the transcriptional upregulation of a transcription factor called GATA2B. Here you can see the first expression of GATA2B as these cells are migrating uh, towards the embryonic midline early. You see at later time points, this becomes an exquisitely specific marker for hemogenic endothelium. All of these cells here are uh, marking the precursors of HSCs. And because of this beautiful specificity, we generated a transgenic line that expresses the transcriptional um, transactivator GAL4 under the GATA2B sequences. And what we can see is that we can see the emergence 
of these HSEs here shown on the right, and we can actually follow with movies um, the um, conversion of hemogenic endothelium to these nascent HSCs, which go on to seed subsequent hematopoietic sites, including the thymus to generate T cells, and the pronephros, which in teleos goes on to become the adult hematopoietic organ. And so with this beautifully specific tool, we return to this initial question, is what is Wnt signaling doing in um, the emergence of hematopoietic stem cells? And so I told you about Wnt16. Um, what I didn't tell you was that is a non-canonical Wnt ligand, which means exactly how it is received and how that signal is transduced um, is difficult to study. This is something that um, Wilson is continuing to look at in his own group at St. Jude. Um, we wanted to know what the role of canonical Wnt signaling was, which involves um, beta-catenin. And so beta-catenin is um, activated upon binding of canonical Wnt ligands, where it then can then enter the nucleus and interact with uh, a TCF transcription factor to activate Wnt target genes. And so in order to block canonical Wnt signaling, we um, utilized a um, transgenic line, which um, has the GAL4 binding site, UAS, upstream of a dominant negative TCF. And so with this dominant negative um, TCF molecules induced, it is a very uh, efficient blockade of canonical wind signaling. And so the net effect of that, as you can see here, and so in wild-type control animals, we can see um, nascent um, hematopoietic stem cells arising here by their expression of C-MIB and in situ hybridization. Um, in um, GATA2B dominant negative TCF animals, we see a really a profound drop in HSC number. That's quantified here on the right, where we see typically about 30 HSCs um, arising in a normal animal. But following blockade of wind signaling, we see that number halved to about um, half that number, about 15 cells. And so um, we wanted to know which of the 26 Wnt ligands were mediating this effect. And so to make a long story short, we looked at the expression of all of those different ligands and focused on one called the Wnt9A. This was interesting to us because it was expressed um, in the developing somites, which you can see here on the right, and was expressed um, at the right time. And so what Stephanie had shown using other tools is that if we blocked Wnt signaling between 10, to 10 and 20 hours post-fertilization, we saw this two-fold decrease in HSC numbers. If she did that blockade after 20 hours, we saw no effect on HSCs. And so this is a very early requirement. And so this expression pattern of Wnt9a uh, matched that perfectly. And so we went on to show in this paper and cell reports a, a lot that we did in close collaboration with um, Carl Willick's group. And so both Stephanie and Jenna were shared uh, postdoc and student respectively in both of our groups. Um, we showed that Wnt9a is expressed by the developing cell mite within this early developmental window that is received as these HSC precursors, again, migrate across the cell mite. If they receive this signal, they are set up to proliferate nicely. If they don't, we see this proliferative block. And this is really interesting because we've never seen this sort of phenotype before in any of our genetic perturbations. Uh, previously, all of our perturbations have led to specification defects, so the initial number is different. In this case, the initial number of HSCs is totally normal compared to wild-type um, cells, but what we see is then a subsequent um, proliferation arrest, and that's really nicely illustrated in this slide. And so Stephanie showed that beginning at about 30 hours post-fertilization, when the numbers of stem cells between these animals is the same, um, 
control stem cells begin to proliferate after this time, whereas in animals that are have the Wnt signaling um, blocked, these animals are effectively flatlined, where we do not see um, proliferation from these stem cells. And this is interesting because even when we use a morpholino to knock down Wnt9a function, um, this proliferation block appears to be sustained into late larval stages, and we think even into adulthood. And when we look in these um, morphunter mutant animals in adulthood, we see defects in the um, kidney marrow, which are similar to what we see in human patients with myeloproliferative disorders. And so this is something that Stephanie is continuing to look at in her laboratory in Michigan. And so we, um, I told you that when we have loss of Wnt9a function, we see a twofold drop in HSC number. Um, this is true with a variety of different reagents. There's two different morpholinos that lead to two, two similar phenotypes. Interestingly, when we knock down the function of Wnt9b, which is a closely related paralog, um, we see no significant defects in HSC number. And so the surprise came in these studies when we started doing rescue experiments. And so to prove this morpholino was specific, we rescued um, its um, loss of function by putting a Wnt9a cDNA back into the system. When we do that, we can in fact rescue HSE's numbers to being uh, normal. The surprise came when we used other canonical Wnt ligands. Um, the effect here was very different. We could not rescue loss of HSCs when we put back other canonical Wnt ligands like Wnt9b, Wnt3a. We also used Wnt8. And um, the bottom line is um, that no other canonical Wnt ligand could rescue this loss of Wnt9a. And this was very surprising to us because the dogma in the wind field is that Wnt's are Wnt's. Um, any canonical Wnt can rescue the loss of another canonical Wnt as long as it's provided in the right sort of time and place. And so these results were very different and told us that in this scenario, it appeared that the requirement for Wnt9a was specific. And so um, Stephanie then wanted to figure out how the specificity was mediated. And so we identified um, the receptor for Wnt9a as being um, frizzled 9b. And then Stephanie set out to do um, a series of really heroic experiments where she did structure function experiments by doing domain swaps between the correct frizzled, which is frizzled 9b, which is shown in this um, figure in green, and an irrelevant frizzled, frizzled 8a, which has zero um, role in hematopoietic stem cell specification. And so what Stephanie did is she added recombinant um, zebrafish went 9a to human went reporter cells, which had recombinant versions of the zebrafish receptors. And so when we give um, zebrafish went 9a to the proper frizzled, we get a strong went signaling readout shown here. When we add Wnt9a to the wrong frizzled, frizzled 8, we see effectively no Wnt signaling. Um, we were surprised to learn, we assume specificity would be mediated by this extracellular region, which is the ligand binding domain for Wnt9a. Um, we did not see that. What Stephanie saw was very different. When she um, swapped the correct domain, so this cytoplasmic tail of frizzled 9b onto the frizzled 8a substrate, she could rescue some signaling. Um, there was an adjacent cytoplasmic loop where she saw a very similar thing. And then I think what was initially very shocking to us is when she put both of these domains from frizzled 9b onto this irrelevant frizzled receptor, she could fully restore 
when signaling. So these experiments taught us a couple of things. First, it taught us that, yes, wind signaling is, um, is um, promiscuous. So the, the right wind can bind to the wrong frizzled. But what's mediating the specificity in this scenario were these cytoplasmic domains. And there was zero precedence for this in the literature. So it left us confused as to how this might be working. And so we thought about it and reasoned um, that the following model must be at play. And so the model is when WENT 9A is provided um, to these cells, it binds to frizzled 9B. It recruits the cofactors like LRP, axon, and disheveled, which are needed for a functional um, WENT signaling complex. And Stephanie reasoned that there must be a co-receptor that could somehow bridge the reception of WENT 9A to the cytoplasmic regions that she showed were critical in these domain swapping experiments. Um, she nicknamed this awesome for a wind signaling molecule since we had no idea what this co-receptor might be. And so we teamed up with David Gonzalez's group here at UCSD, who was really a master at um, using these APEX assays as well as mass spec. And so what Stephanie did is she tethered this APEX2 enzyme to this region of Prisl 9B she showed was key for specificity. This assay is designed to uh, biotinylate all proteins within 30 nanometers of this molecular tag. We then did biotin pulldowns and mass spec with David's lab. And um, the answer was became very obvious that the top 50 altered proteins that we saw here supported the involvement of the EGF receptor signaling pathway. Um, all of our hits were involving EGF receptor signaling or involving clathrin-mediated endocytosis, which make a lot of sense, as I'll tell you in a minute. And so the EGF receptor, there are um, literally 100,000 papers on this molecule because it's involved in a wide variety of human cancers. It's very well understood. It typically, um, upon ligand binding, um, these receptors will um, heterodimerize, um, homodimerize with one another. They cross-force, correlate each other, and activate signaling pathways, including RAS and PI3 and the JAK-STAT signaling pathway. And so um, the model that Stephanie put together of how this is working is that um, WIT9A binds to both frizzled 9 b and the ligand binding domain of the EGF receptor. The EGF receptor then is brought into this complex where she showed it phosphorylates this tyrosine residue on the C-terminal tail on this region that she showed was key for specificity. This entire complex is then internalized by these clathrin-mediated um, pits to endocytose these vesicles, which then interact with the so-called um, destruction complex in the cytoplasm which then liberates beta-catenin to go to the nucleus to turn on target gene expression. And so um, this, I think Stephanie did an amazing job figuring this out. I mean, this, this there is absolutely no um, precedent in the literature for EGF receptor as being a um, co-receptor for wind signaling in any scenarios. And so um, this is only the second example that we know of in the literature where there is a co-receptor which can help mediate specificity of wind signaling in particular contexts. And so she is working in her own laboratory now to try and understand if the EGF receptor is involved in other um, ligand receptor interactions or whether or not there might be other co-receptors and some of the other processes um, that she's interested in. 
So we next wanted to know, is this new signaling pathway important in human hematopoiesis? And so we worked with Carl to, um, to um, look at this in human pluripotent stem cells. And so in differentiation protocols, where these um, human um, pluripotent stem cells can be um, induced to generate mesoderm and then vascular um, endothelium and then hematopoietic precursors, we introduced um, shRNA for FRISLD9 to block human FRISLD9, and then looked at the readout of these hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells by their combined expression of CD34 and CD45. And so as shown in this panel, compared to controls here, where we just had short um, hairpin um, control RNAs, we see normal numbers of CD34, CD45, double positive cells here. When we block the function of FRISLD9, however, we see almost no generation of these HSPCs, which is quantified here on the right. And so um, we think this nicely illustrates the evolutionary conservation of this signaling pathway in the generation of early hematopoietic cells from these mesodermal precursors. And so in this fourth and final um, vignette, I'll tell you another story um, about how the somite is helping to, um, I think, more maintain hematopoietic stem cell fate. And so when Pankaj and Claire, fellows in the group, were um, imaging how these lateral plate mesodermal stripes of cells interact with the somite, um, they noticed something interesting. And so I'll show you a confocal time lapse. This is again in this time window that we're very interested in between um, 10 and 20 hours. This movie is over two hours from 14 to 16 hours. Um, what you're going to see here is that there are these stripes of lateral plate mesoderm, which are marked by this endothelial specific uh, promoter, ETB2, which marks these green cells. Um, the somites are labeled with a Semitic marker, PHLW1M cherry. And so if you watch this time lapse, you'll see down here in this region that there is a cell which starts off red, turns yellow, and then becomes green, and essentially follows those lateral plate mesoderm cells as they dive underneath the somite to migrate to the midline. Um, there's just one cell here, so I'll show you a different movie. This is um, two hours later in another somite. Um, the same general thing is happening here. These stripes of ETV2 positive cells are migrating across the somite. The somites are marked here just with a membrane tag. And if you watch up here, you'll see a cell that comes from within the somite that starts off being orange, um, transforms into this GFP positive endothelial cell that then follows its sort of brethren as they start migrating towards the midline. And so um, we've done a lot of imaging experiments with these cells, and although they're rare, we think there's only about two or three of these cells generated um, from about 10 or 15 of the medial somites. And what we've seen is that they derive from this hypaxial lip of the dermomyotome, which are these cells here in blue. And this is interesting because in the chick embryo, as I'll tell you, um, there has been shown to be a very similar population of endothelial cells that are born in the somite, but then um, traffic out of the somite into the dorsal aorta. And so um, what this looks like is shown here. Here's another um, close-up image of one of these somite-derived endothelial cells that's just in the process of leaving the somite. Um, we wanted to know what these cells looked like in terms of their transcriptional profile. And so um, Pankaj showed that these cells that are ETV2 positive, which is shown here in red, um, co-express markers of early muscles. So muscle sort of precursor markers, including the transcription factor PAX3A, 
and MIOX1 shown here. When the cells differentiate fully to muscle, as marked by MyOD, however, um, there is no co-expression. So this suggested to us that these ETV2 positive cells are deriving from these bipotent progenitors that could make either muscle or endothelium. And so this is supported by this experiment where we did um, knockdown of this muscle um, transcription factor, MIOX1. If you look relative to wild-type animals here with MIOX in green and ETV2 in red, we see that there are increases in these somite-derived endothelial cells when we knock down this key muscle gene. We can take this to an even further extreme if we also knock down MIOX1 function in the context of a NOTCH3 mutant. And so NOTCH3 is known to be the key NOTCH receptor in driving muscle commitment during somatogenesis. In this scenario, we see that um, the somites can transform into these wide swaths of endothelial cells is marked by um, this red ETV2 gene. And so this told us that the somites actually, despite only making a couple of these somite-derived endothelial cells uh, per somite, have broad potential to do so if that's unmasked by looking in um, different um, genetic manipulation scenarios. So where do these cells go and what do they do? And so we took advantage of a really fantastic uh, muscle-specific driver called TBX6. This is what expression of a TBX6 GFP line looks like here. We see it just localized to the somites. And so we use, utilize a similar transgene. This is a TBX6 CRE, which expresses the CRE recombinase only within these um, Semitic muscle precursors. Um, to this, we crossed um, this really lovely transgenic line that Jeff and Caroline Burns generated and uh, very generously shared with us which features this endothelial-specific uh, KDRL promoter driving this switch transgene. And so um, normally, without any Cree activity, the vasculature in these animals is blue, expresses CFP only. But upon Cree excision, this, um, this cassette is removed to turn um, these cells yellow. So in this scenario, only muscle-derived endothelial cells will become yellow. And so what we saw here is that um, the vast majority of the semi-derived endothelial cells incorporated into the dorsal aorta, first into the roof because that's nearest the somite, and then later they would encapsulate much of the aortic space um, as shown here in this figure. So this is interesting because something very similar was shown in these um, chick quail um, chimeras that were generated um, when Claire was a uh, student with Thierry Jafredo's group in Paris. And so what she did here is she was able to transplant um, pre-Semitic mesoderm from the quail into the chick embryo, and then using antibodies specific to quail could show later um, that there are um, quail-derived cells um, surrounding um, the dorsal aorta, which is seen here in this close-up image. So this was interesting to us because evolutionarily, this looked very similar to what we have seen in the zebrafish. And so can these cells generate blood? I told you they are born in the somite, they migrate to the aorta. Um, can they be hemogenic? Um, the answer to that is no. We generated a very similar lineage trace where we um, use this TBX6 muscle-specific driver um, to um, activate CRE and recombine another switch line that goes from blue to red. And so when we do this, we see that we in fact get conversion of the Semitic um, tissue into red. 
We also see these semi-derived endothelial cells um, forming um, within the dorsal aorta, shown here and here. And then when we grew these animals up, we waited six months and we looked at adult animals in the kidney, which is where the, the hematopoietic cells are. Um, we saw that there were effectively no hematopoietic stem cells. There were no red cells in the kidneys of any of these lineage trace animals, which told us that these cells, although they go to the dorsal aorta and to the aortic floor, do not have hematopoietic potential. And so what are they doing then? And so we did single cell RNA sequencing of the somite-derived endothelial cells on the right and compared them to um, the posterior lateral mesoderm-derived endothelial cells on the left. And notice that these SDECs express high levels of these factors that we and others have shown to be um, key um, support elements for early hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, including angiopoietin-like 4, BMP4, um, the SPARC protein. And so we thought from this pattern that perhaps these cells are migrating to the dorsal aorta to provide um, necessary signals for a sort of the continued maturation and eventual emergence of HSCs. So to get at that, we did some um, genetic manipulation experiments designed to push this bipotent precursor either towards endothelial fates or towards muscle. And so the first experiment we did was we looked at RUNX1 expression, which marks early um, hemogenic endothelium. And um, we introduced a transgene in which the um, endothelial-specific um, um, transcription factor, ETV2, was expressed by this early muscle driver. Um, when we do this, when we push these bipotent precursors to make more endothelium, we see an increase in RUNCS1 positive HSCs relative to um, littermate controls. We um, did a very similar experiment. We used a MIOX1 morpholino to increase the number of somite-derived endothelial cells at the expense of muscle and see the same increase in HSC precursors. And conversely, when we injected a MIOX1 mRNA to push those bipotent precursors to just make muscle, we see a um, near complete absence of hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells as um, evidenced by their lack of expression of GATA2B. And so um, we think that this means that these cells, um, although they don't generate blood, are becoming key niche elements that help the maturation of these cells over time. And so we're working now to understand which of these um, factors that they either express on their membrane or secrete are key to the phenotypes we've observed here. And so um, I've told you now four different vignettes for um, these roles of the somite in the instruction or maintenance of hematopoietic stem cell fate. Um, there's this early proliferation cue we've, we've discovered that's emanating from the somite that's needed by the precursors of HSCs. And so no matter what we've started studying over the past several years, it's led us back to the importance of the somite in the instruction of HSC fate, which has come as a, um, a big surprise to us. And so what we're working on now, as um, Katrina mentioned, and I showed you with um, the WENT-9 experiments, is that we're working to translate our discoveries in the zebrafish to human pluripotent stem cells. I told you that we cannot yet generate bona fide HSCs um, from these sorts of approaches. Our hope is that if we provide these factors we've uncovered, such as um, notch signaling, which I didn't tell you about today, but uh, much of our work in the last several years has suggested notch as a really key signaling um, molecule for this process. 
TNF and interferon gamma are also key. Um, I've told you about the role for WET9A. We're hoping that if we provide all of these factors in the right temporal order, we can um, increase the efficiency of hemogenic endothelium generation from these human pluripotent stem cells such that we may be eventually able to generate transplantable hematopoietic stem cells. All right, and so um, I think I thanked people along the way for these experiments. Um, the people in the lab that were really the drivers of all these projects are shown here on the left. Um, we are indebted to David Gonzalez for helping us identify the EGF receptor as a co-receptor for WET9A. All of our WET studies were done in very close collaboration with our longtime um, colleague, Carl Willard. I'd like to thank our funding sources for making all this work possible and uh, thank all of you for your attention. Okay, great, David. Um, really beautiful work as, as always. Um, looking for anybody who has um, questions, can enter them in the Q&A. We got time for uh, a couple. Um, I'll ask, well, well, maybe we're, we're waiting and, and, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, our, our interest has been, um, you know, with you to, to see if we can get true transplantable HSCs. And so, you know, one of these is, as you mentioned, these, these waves of development and, and you have sort of lined up these factors. The, the other element, is, you have it, I'll, I'll say, on an aggressive developmental timeline, right? So yes. within a couple of weeks. So what is the time when, you know, I'll say the in the human embryo or fetus that the cells actually start to emerge from the AGM? And, you know, is that something we also have to recapitulate in these cultures? Yeah, good question. I think that's right. I mean, you're right in that, you know, zebrafish development is incredibly fast, right? So these stem cell emergence events take place between about 36 hours and 72 hours of development. You know, in this human pluripotent stem cell system, that takes several weeks, right? So mm -hmm. the time order is very different. It's also very different in um, human hematopoiesis. Um, I was just at a meeting where Hanna Mikola has made a huge amount of progress there trying to um, look at human development, um, exactly when and where these events happen. And I think, you know, um, in terms of temporal order, the findings are very well conserved between human, between mouse, and between fish in terms of what happens first and the pathways that are activated. So our hopes um, are that findings in any one of these systems can be put into the human ESL systems, right, and still um, still be relevant to the way human hematopoietic cells develop. Okay. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, as I was suggesting, it, it Maybe, you know, whether it's, I don't know, you have a 28 day time frame there, but it, you know, it may just be longer is something that I've started to, to feel that we, we get these primitive waves, you know, quite readily. But it, it, as you say, the challenge is getting the definitive. Yeah, um, I think, you know, like, like Gordon Keller has shown, if you block specific pathways during those windows, you know, you can um, block emergence of primitive blood. You know, mm -hmm. You keep those processes in check. You can keep pushing the cells with these factors to go down the definitive pathways, which will, mm -hmm. you know, lead us to um, generate HSCs or something very close to that. Okay. All right. One more question, I think, before we get to Gene. I was wondering if it's possible to differentiate iPSCs to heme endothelium, and the later can be used as a 
co-culture model for IPS HSC differentiation. Um, so I guess develop two populations, essentially. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of getting at one idea. You know, one of the things we're, we, one of the models we like is, you know, we think there's a population of arterial endothelium that does not ever um, convert to blood, right? So if we identify some of the key factors that you need to make hemogenic endothelium, um, we think we may be able to convert those non-hemogenic fates into hemogenic potential if you put the right things into those cells, right? Or maybe even with these semi-derived endothelial cells, if we can um, convert those to becoming hemogenic, that would also be really impressive since our um, work to date has shown that those cells have zero hematopoietic potential, right? So it serves as a really nice assay for maybe pushing those cells in that direction. Okay. So we're going to introduce our um, second speaker um, is uh, Dr. Jean Yao, um, who's um, also faculty here uh, at UC San Diego. He's a professor in um, cellular and molecular medicine. Um, just in, in terms of brief background, did um, undergraduate work at the uh, University of uh, Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, and then his PhD uh, at MIT before coming uh, here to, to UC San Diego, um, really has been one of the founders of our uh, stem cell program, um, also a member of the cancer, Moore's Cancer Center here at UCSD, um, and really uh, uh, pioneering expertise in um, RNA biology, and in particular RNA binding proteins. Um, leads a very active lab, though his office is just down the hall from me, and we need to get you back in here more, Gene, to Yes. <laughs> uh, now that uh, it's, a, it's a safer environment, um, but a very active lab, both um, wet lab and computational um, expertise. Um, so really great um, that he could uh, join us today. And I see he's got a blood topic in mind, working on models yep. of myelodysplastic syndrome. So he's going to talk to us about RNA binding proteins um, and uh, MDS. So thanks. Thank you, Dan. Okay, so some disclosures of financial interest. And I'm just gonna wanna say, we live in an RNA world, right? Because essentially all of us have been transfected by synthetic mRNA. But just to remind everybody that in every cell, uh, we have RNA that's expressed <laughs> uh, and as uh, from genetic regions in the, in the genome. Uh, and they, they don't magically become proteins and they don't magically uh, appear um, at, you know, in different parts of the cell and they all are localized and, and organized and, and orchestrated by uh, human RNA binding proteins. And uh, when I began my group at UCSD, you know, there were maybe 300 to 500 uh, RNA binding proteins annotated in the human genome. Uh, since then, through a variety of different technologies developed by many other groups, uh, including our group, uh, uh, we've identified now that there are at least uh, 2,500 proteins, including the human genome, that bind RNA. And this is a very nice diagram on the right by Tom Tuchel's lab in Rockefeller, where he uh, painstakingly you know, uh, illustrates that, that small RNA biogenesis, uh, long, you know, long linear non-coding uh, uh, non as well as coding RNA biogenesis, at every single step, there are proteins that bind them, bind the RNA and, and, and mediate the processing of these 
and then uh, in localization, and then even uh, uh, target the RNA to uh, for degradation. So we are very interested in my lab about our environment predictions and what they do, uh, you know, in, in different settings and development. Now, RNA binding proteins um, uh, bind to short cis regulatory elements uh, in the transcriptome. And these binding sites can be sequence specific, can be structure specific, can be three dimensional uh, RNA structures these days as well. And, and, they, and the RBPs that bind these elements control um, gene expression. And there are you know, thousands of elements for any given RNA binding protein. And so one can imagine that if you disrupt uh, an RNA binding protein or you disrupt its RNA targets, uh, interaction, even a single nucleotide, it can give rise to many different forms of diseases and cancers. And my lab classically studies neurodevelopment and degenerative diseases, right? So uh, we've, been, we've been very interested in, in trying to understand the basis of uh, RNA regulation, uh, uh, so-called the RNA binding protein, protein RNA interaction code. Um, and, and we do that by developing a whole bunch of different technologies. And so, uh, so just broadly speaking, we care a lot about RNA binding proteins as gene expression regulators, and we develop technologies to study them. Uh, we care a lot about RNA binding proteins these days as, as drugs themselves. So, so if, 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 you know, we and others in the field have, have repurposed uh, different natural carrying protein RNA interac interacting complexes as, as drugs. And then uh, more recently uh, in, in the lab, we've been very interested in, in RBPs themselves as drug targets. Okay, so uh, we used many different tools. And since this is a, the genomic section in a you know, stem cell uh, um, meeting, uh, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we think about RNA processing and integrate genomics and disease modeling and, and, and come up with ways that we hopefully will be potentially therapeutically useful, right? Okay. We take a very bottom-up approach uh, in how we think about RNA binding proteins and RNA interactions. And so we care a lot about where every single binding sites are, right, in the transcriptome. And some of the technologies we have developed, uh, which could be helpful here in setting the stage for the, the, the science that, that I'll discuss, uh, is an enhanced clip approach. And, um, so this approach requires cross-linking of RNA to RNA binding proteins and using an antibody to immunoprecipitate the RNA binding protein RNA complex out from the cell, uh, out from the, the rest of the milieu, right? And, and you digest away all the unprotected um, RNA uh, fragments. Um, and then you ligate the, the, uh, the protected you know, RNA fragment uh, with sequencing adapters and, and essentially do RT-PCR and, and generate a library that you sequence, right? So this enhanced clip approach cross-linking IP allows us to identify very robustly the binding site for a given RBP. And the technology we developed in 2016 it's about a thousand times better than any existing technologies before. And you can see every single dot here is a data set that's been generated by my group with this method. If you download all the other data sets out there, the y-axis is percent reads that are usable, meaning, meaning not PCR duplicates, right? So uh, essentially every single library you generate here, you know, most of them uh, have a very high fraction of the reads that are, that are usable and not uh, amplified because initial library generation steps were poor. Uh, so this has been used by many groups, including you know, our group and, and lots of you know, publications uh, illustrating the ability for eClip to identify what RBPs do. Uh, however, there are some limitations. And so recently we've also published 
a different method where we fuse the RNA binding protein to apoebic enzymes, right? And, and instead of an IP approach, uh, the apoebic enzyme ch changes CTUs uh, in, in the RNA transcript. Uh, and then we can do regular RNA-seq, right, to identify whether RPP is bound because it's bound uh, and mediates these editing events. Uh, what's cool is that because you can do regular RNA-seq, uh, you can do isoform-sensitive uh, uh, measurements using long-read technologies like PikeBio and Nanopore, and then single-cell experiments using 10x. So this is the first figure uh, data actually showing a, a single-cell binding of an RNA binding protein in each, each um, track here is a, a single cell uh, example. So we use some of these technologies in a lot of our studies, and I'll talk about the Eclipse method a little bit more in this splicing one. And so this is a story that, that we started about six, seven years ago now, when Emily Wheeler uh, joined my group as a graduate student. And Emily has a personal interest uh, in, in blood cancers, but came from an RNA lab in Indiana, Heather Hundley's lab. And so she really wanted to work on RNA biology as well, right? And, and so we teamed up with uh, Irini Pepperotrov's group in Mount Sinai, and then later on with Ernesto and then Roger Sunahara's group at UCSD. Uh, Ernesto was in Singapore and then now he's at Mount Sinai as well. Uh, and, and so this, this project came about because actually Emily uh, reached out to Irini, uh, who is an expert in MDS and wanted to collaborate and said, can we do that? And I said, sure, like, why not, right? And, and so, um, so MDS, is a group of uh, diverse bone marrow disorders, right? Where the bone marrow doesn't produce enough mature red blood cells. It's uh, primarily a disease of the elderly, but can also affect younger patients. And uh, normally, uh, as, uh, as uh, David had pointed out, right, HSCs are important in generating uh, a variety of different cell types, red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets. But in MDS, uh, these stem cells don't really mature uh, or may have a shortened lifespan Plus, you have fewer normal uh, mature blood cells. And for 30% of MDS patients, they progress to acute uh, myeloid leukemia. So in 2011, there was a landmark paper that was published that shook the MDS, uh, but also the RNA world, right? Because uh, they pointed, it, this paper pointed out that a large fraction of MDS patients uh, contain specific point mutations in splicing factors, right? And, and these are highly conserved point mutations in, in factors that bind the branch point in splicing, so SF3B1, uh, binds the things that bind exons, exon sequences, SRSFs, and then three prime splice site sequences, U2F. Uh, these, these mutations were, are heterozygous and, and were also mutually exclusive, right? So they don't happen uh, uh, with each other. And, and, and so that suggests that, that there might be some downstream common target um, that uh, lead to the phenotypic, uh, monoclear and phenotypic consequences, right? And so this paper was published, published in 2011, and, and clearly, you know, many, many groups uh, in the interim uh, published a lot in this, in, in this, in this uh, falling, falling on this study, right? And, and, you know, the obvious things were done, right? You take mice, you know, you, you, you overexpress the mutants, um, splicing factors with the specific mutation and see what happens. Or you take K562 cells, you overexpress the splicing factor uh, with the mutation and then you see what happens. You take patient, you know, uh, RNA-seq samples and you just look at RNA splicing, right? So, so many studies have, have, have been performed already, right? And yet there hasn't been, you know, a, a convergence on, on why mechanistically there are, there are diff different splicing mutations and, and what are the, 
the downstream events that actually cause the disease, right? And, and ultimately, can we actually use the information to, to generate therapeutic outcomes? And so with all these studies, uh, as I mentioned, mice get very mild with any MDS phenotypes. Many studies looked at splicing events uh, in the mice cells and tried to compare that to human. Uh, but, but I know from our own studies that I published in 2005, for example, that, uh, that showed that only about 25% of, of alternate splicing events are conserved in human and mice. So let's look at human systems, right? Uh, many models of leukemia express these mutant splicing factors at very non-physiological levels and, and, and often cell lines don't express the same genes as HSC. So, so it's really unclear so, so far still if the splicing targets that people have identified with RNA-seq, are they even direct targets? Are they even bound differentially by these mutant splicing factors, right? Um, and so Shaley, Shaley in Arini's lab did something really beautiful, right? Uh, she, she first took human IPS systems and made single point mutations with CRISPR-Cas9 uh, uh, in, in, you know, in the generate heterozygous mutation. So SRSF2 point mutation, the P95L mutation, and then separate line U2F1 point mutations S34F, right? And then uh, from our pushing her, we said, hey, you know, we encourage you. We want to eventually look at binding site differences, right? Are the splicing factors bind RNA? Are they binding different sequences, right? And to really do that in the right context, she then knocked in three uh, X flag tags in the in the mutant allele or the wild type allele in the mutant background or the wild type background. And I think this is a it's a really nice system because it keeps the the copy number of the mutation uh, carrying allele the same, right? You know, uh, and you can then IP and pull down these binding sites. In, in their essay, which they do all the time, and I don't really uh, uh, do this in my group, but, but they look at, at differentiations of these, uh, of these cell, uh, cell types, right? Uh, IPS systems, and then look at uh, colony forming potential in uh, methyl cellulose assays. Um, and they find that indeed you get a, when you do differentiations of these lines in many different replicates, uh, you can you see a, a reduction in the uh, mature colonies that form with the mutant lines, but not the wild type. So I, this assay, I you know, Arrhenius Labs has published before, and and I, I take a word for this. Uh, uh, they, they seem to uh, be quite confident that this is the assay that they they use to score. So again, these are differentiated in Arrhenius lab into this uh, HS uh, progenitor cells, um, and and what what she's been then giving us right thus far is that. Uh, she's been isolating uh, these different Waltam and, and, and HSPCs and then sorting them for CD34, CD45 positive cells and then sending us uh, re, uh, RNA or a frozen uh, lysate to do our experiments. Okay, so the first easy experiment is to look at RNA-seq data, right? Uh, in the mutant versus wild type. And so we define here uh, U2F1 uh, wild type uh, and then U2F1 mutants. And then we look at the score called percent splice in for exons that were included or exons that were excluded. You know, this was the score that was uh, developed by my grad school mentor, Chris Birch, as a percent splice in score that used throughout the splicing literature. So PSI tells you that it's exons included more or less. So the exons included more in the wild type versus the mutant situation. We call that a wild type exon. But one's really, but it's really excluded in the S34F mutant, right? And then, this, then 
once included in the mutant, but excluded, we call it F thirty four F exon versus wall, wall type. Same for this. Uh, and so the first analysis was to ask: um, Are there from these groups of exons that we can distinguish uh, that were mutant or wall type specific in a different context? What were the mutations? Sorry, what were the preferences? Right. And so we can see that the wild exons were included in the wild type, but skipped in the mutant tended to have the UAG sequences for the U2F1 muta mutation. And then the ones included in the mutant, but skipped in the wild type had the CAG preference. This was known before. This was published from, from many RNA-seq data sets. So the preferences were at least the same and correct. And then same for uh, the SRSF2 mutation, uh, mutant preferences, they actually, uh, uh, the exons were just skipped and included differentially in mutant versus wild type had different preferences as well. This is already known. And so this, this confirmed what, what we've seen in patient uh, RNA-seq data sets. Uh, but what the next step is, are these due to a physical binding or a differential binding of the uh, RNA binding protein? So what Emily did was to do allele-specific eclip, right? So she could tag to IP uh, in the different alleles and, and in the wild type and mutant allele, the wild type and mutant allele, and, and first, our first pass typically is to ask, do the binding sites uh, make sense with regards to the molecular function of the protein? And so this RNA binding protein U2F1 binds typically the three prime splice sites. And you see this green, this orange representation tells you that it's indeed enriched over there versus the other regions in the transcript, right? On, on average, right? And same for SRSF2, uh, they typically bind exon sequences, as you can see from this blue, uh, there's a reduction in binding, but still the representation overall look the same. So the representation of the binding for both WALTAP and immune alleles are the same, but, but are the, the motif preferences the same? And indeed, that was where we thought it was very interesting because we find that the, the mutant preferences uh, were different, right? So indeed, we see similar to what we see and expected from the, the exons that were changing, the binding preferences were different. So CAG preference versus UAG, and then same for the uh, um, uh, SRSF binding sites, right? So again, preferences uh, for the binding sites were actually distinct, uh, and but fortunately corresponded to the RNA-seq uh, induced, uh, RNA-seq mediated like splicing measurements, right? Next, we combine the binding patterns, direct binding with the, the uh, um, RNA-seq uh, measured changes, right? And so we, con we generate these RNA splicing maps. Uh, you know, these are ones where you can look for canonical exons that were included or excluded, and, and they overlap the binding patterns from the clip data, right? So this tells us, for example, that exons that are included more in wild type but skipped in mutant were enriched for binding for wild type exons, right? And same for both. But exons that were included in the mutant but skipped in wild type were, were had more binding for the mutant splicing factors. And when Emily broke this up into three different categories, it became even clearer, right? So you can even take all, ex all exons that are ultimately spliced and, and bind them to only ones having the wall type binding, binding pattern, which is both, <coughs> or the, only the mutant binding peak. And just using U2F1 as an example, uh, exons which only had the mutant binding peak, right? Uh, were included more in the mutant uh, cells versus wall type. Once we only had the wild type, were included more in the wild type cells versus the mutant. And, and I won't go over some of the specific genes here, but I'll point out one of them in the next slide. So what Emily did was then overlap, obviously, the two 
splicing events uh, between, there were differentially spliced between different mutations and asking, is there anything in common? And then she overlapped that also with MDS patient cells, you know, just to make sure that some of these were changing in patient cells. And that was a very small number. And then she finally got to um, overlapping the differential eclip binding. And it was an even smaller number, right? So we got to only three exons. And at this point, I thought this project was, was dead in the water. Um, but uh, but and this is just showing the, you know, the overlap with differential binding. But then Emily showed me the, the actual genome browser tracks. And you know, I love to look at these, right? So this is B2F1 wild type uh, binding on the GNS um, exon three. And I'll tell you what GNS is in a bit, but there's no binding there. And then the U2F1 mutant binds there. And in fact, because it binds here, it includes this exon uh, more in the mutant condition versus wild type. You can make the same argument for the SRSF2 binding sites, uh, but just to show you that in this specific exon, which is the uh, exon three of the uh, GNAS gene, uh, alpha stimulating, you know, guanine nucleotide binding protein, right? Uh, you can see a higher inclusion of these exons in the mutant case from the IPS models, but also in MDS patient cells. And so the next question that, that um, Shaley and Emily asked was, can we express the long isoform with this one, iso with this one exon to reproduce the MDS phenotype? And the answer is yes. So they can express just the long versus short in wild type lines and to induce this phenotype that they measure. Uh, and then you can also knock down the isoform alone. So exon three knocked down to then uh, correct the phenotype in the mutant cells. So then we were, we were very interested in this GNAS uh, long isoform, right? Uh, so what's been known uh, and published by our colleague, right, at UCSC, Rafael Bahar, uh, was that there was actually a, a, another mutation in this GNAS gene found in a small percent of MDS patients, somewhere else in the gene, and it's R201H, and it was it's an activating mutation. And so we hypothesized that the exon 3 inclusion may also be an activating, you know, mutation, right? Uh, so so G-alpha-S, right, which is the protein, uh, that is uh, translated from this uh, GNAS gene. It's a member of this heterotrimeric family of G proteins activated by GPCRs. And in the inactive state, G alpha is bound to GDP and in, a, in the uh, inactive state. And then to, be, to become active, it has to like, release GDP, exchange it for GTP. Um, and, and, and so we, we figured maybe this, this one exon inclusion event altered this balance, right? So we are not expressed in GPCRs, right? And, 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 and so we reached out to Roger Sunahara's lab. Actually, I'll correct. Emily Wheeler reached out to uh, uh, her colleague uh, in Roger Sunahara's lab. And then Roger said, yeah, this seems like an interesting project. And I was very excited because uh, uh, they had been studying G-alpha-S for quite a while uh, in different, different forms of cancer. And it's the first time we've actually identified isoform in G-alpha-S to try to understand what it, what it might do differently, right? And so... Here, what, uh, what uh, Roger's lab did was to make recombinant long and short and basically uh, have a non-hydrolyzable form of GTP, so gamma S, and, and, and uh, see if the capacity of binding it was different. And indeed, the long isoform actually bound uh, uh, this, uh, this form of GTP uh, faster than the short isoform. And then in other studies, which uh, I don't have time to go through, he also showed uh, uh, quite convincingly to us that, that the long isoform indeed is, is ultimately more active uh, than the short form. Okay, so what does this uh, G-alpha-S long isoform do? Well, 
to cut a long story short here also, we, we eventually found that it activates ERK map case signaling. If you overexpress the long isoform, uh, you can get higher phosphor ERK. Uh, this is true for IPS, the IPS HSPCs, you know, from, from cord blood CD3 for positive cells, as well as the in, in uh, MDS primary cells. So you get higher levels of, of ERK activity since many GPCRs uh, regulate ERK. And so this hypothesis turned out to be correct. And, and what got Irini uh, even more excited is because she had colleagues that were down the hall studying um, this pathway. And she pointed out that ERK MAPK activation, right, uh, might be, might be, you know, since it's different here in this splicing factor mutant cells, maybe there's like a way to test the dependency of this splicer factor uh, mutant cells on, on this signaling pathway. And, and MEC uh, is upstream of ERK in this pathway. So there've been several MEC inhibitors uh, are currently uh, FDA approved uh, in oncology for uh, melanoma and other solid tumors, uh, including uh, uh, this one here as we use the control. Uh, and so, but then you want to test the MEK inhibitors versus this mutant BREF inhibitor, even though they're all like, you know, melanoma, using melanoma. And so she, she tested these and turns out that, um, you know, all of them so far give, uh, you know, uh, vulnerability or, or, or mutant cells show marked sensitivity to all these inhibitors, but not the control. So it's quite interesting, right? So, so, so what we think is happening is that in splicing factor mutant cells, you know, between these two splicing factors, there's, there's many splicing changes, but ultimately one, one that's relevant to the phenotype that we can reproduce, right? And, and this isoform uh, of, of G, uh, GNAS or G-alpha long uh, seems to be controlling or upstream of uh, uh, ERK uh, uh, signaling. And, and you can leverage this to actually uh, provide, uh, in this case, reproversing of, of uh, compounds uh, for, for MDS. And so with that, I'll, I'll just stop and thank you for the opportunity to, to tell you about science. And I'm happy to take questions. Um, we'll have to invite you to my lab and I'll have to teach you how to do hematopoietic yes. colony assays. So Perfect. my first <laughs> paper using human embryonic stem cells was literally titled hematopoietic colony forming cells derived from human embryonic stem cells because it is a great assay. Though we don't do it as much anymore, um, but it's... Yes, I, I will take you up on that offer for sure. There's yeah. <laughs> somebody in your lab. Uh, it is something we're we're looking at getting back into some early hematopoiesis studies. So, um, if anybody has any questions for Gene, we we got a minute, um, and you know can maybe ask. I you know again, I think it's great looking at these MDS targets and and really figuring out these these mechanisms and and potential druggable targets. Um, maybe I'll just ask if what's next. Um, are you still there? Did we lose you? Yeah, you're there. I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. So, what's, is there what's more the on the list there then for targets and? Uh, well, so no. so we are we are continuing to look at at um, the splicing of GNAS because it turns out that this isoform is interesting for a variety of different cancers, not just this one. Uh, and so we're we're developing ways to to try to modulate and understand the splicing directly of, of GNAS, which I think would be very useful. Let's see. And mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, in Irini's side, I think they're pushing hard to think about uh, using these uh, MEK inhibitors for MDS patients. So that's mm -hmm. something that I think uh, will, may, will continue on from a translational perspective. Yeah. yeah, I think that's interesting. 
And then I'll ask, well, you know, we got a second, you know, again, it's, it's great getting into MDS and, and hematopoiesis, but how much, and, and I know you've looked at a number of degenerative disease, right? I mean, are these all, you know, I'll say yeah. independent pathways or are there common mechanisms oh, yeah. they are sort of these, in any of these sort of, you know, I consider this sort of a, you know, we kind of think about this as a disorder of aging, right? That as you yeah. get older, you accumulate these defects. But I don't know if that's. I mean, true. there are. It turns out, and this may may go on to you know the next session, but there are actually a lot of splicing events that change during age, and and there many of them are signaling pathways, and so that might actually provide opportunity to think about rejuvenation and you know anti-aging stuff, right? So. But, but, you know, I don't know if they're cause or consequence, right? These are things that are correlated so far, yeah, so far. Okay. Great. Thanks so much, Gene.